often we conflate the term technology with the term digital, but really, you know, painting was a technology, charcoal was a technology, you know, the cave paintings were reliant on a technology, it's just not a digital technology. Science fiction, in a way, is speculative reality. Oh, totally, you know? yeah. So, so sure. sci-fi is really sci-true if you wait long yeah. enough. And I no. think there's also a fear of loss, like kind mm-hmm. of like a phantom limb uh, yeah. of our memory, of, that if we have something new, it means we're going to have to give up something that already exists. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Once you arrive in the country, it's always this moral imperative of like DNA collection and, and cellular material being that it's a new type of media. Together, we made this thing mm-hmm. that became an antibody that is now in China <gasps> helping in the research for cancer. So, and I think it's an artwork. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I have photographs of, this, of, of the crystals forming. They're really beautiful. And to me, you know, it, it's really a new dynamic way of involving the media of our time. I mean, what is the support in the United States for ours itself and much less for experimentation? Mm-hmm. I mean, there really is none. That really is the demise of a culture. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your guest host, Ethan Appleby from State of the Art Podcast. I'm excited to be here because it's the first time that we've ever had a guest host on Untitled, and it's also recorded the week that Untitled came to San Francisco. So thank you for joining us for this special edition, which was recorded live at The Battery in San Francisco earlier this year on January 11th, 2019. So I'm very, very excited to introduce our panelists tonight. So as I mentioned, this is our first guest podcast. And what we've done is we have invited Ethan Appleby of the State of the Art podcast to host tonight's discussion. Ethan Appleby is the host and founder of the State of the Art podcast, where he interviews leaders at the forefront of technology's role in the art world. The podcast features in-depth conversations with guests ranging from digital artists to curators and founders of online marketplaces. State of the Art Podcast has led state-of-the-art conversations with guests, including artists, scientists, government officials, aeronautical engineers, neuroestheticians. Yeah. I was wondering if I could pronounce that right. Teachers, curators, coders, gamers, and game changers. So tonight we've invited Ethan to lead a discussion on a Very simple, but also very profound topic, viewing art in the digital age. And I thought this would be a really interesting topic to explore because what Ethan is doing is sort of looking at the interface between art and technology and how technology affects the way that we view and experience art. What Untitled does is in the opposite direction. We're putting on a brick and mortar show in a physical space in very specific locations, encouraging people to come down and to see the art in person, to sort of get off of the internet, to get off of their phones and actually come to the fair, view the art and have it one-to-one in-person conversation with the artist or with the dealer that's representing their work. So I thought this was a really vital conversation to look at where these two worlds intersect. As technology continues to evolve and permeate nearly every aspect of human life, it's only natural that our markets and culture evolve alongside it ushering in new concepts and questions. The art world, arguably moving at a slower pace than other markets, 
is a delicate ecosystem grappling with what the digital age means for the arts. From redefining what art is and how our viewers consume it to who and how one profits from it. So tonight, Ethan has invited three fabulous panelists that I'm very happy to have here with us tonight. All the way on the end is Erica Gangzi. She is the head of interpretive media at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. In this role, she leads a team of multimedia storytellers to create award-winning digital resources such as audio tours, video interviews with artists, in-museum interpretive gallery spaces, games, and the podcast, Raw Material. Erica is passionate about games and is the founder of the museum's Play SF MoMA initiative, which presents pop-up arcades, game jams, lectures, workshops, and a designer-in-residence series. Next, we have Dorothy Santos, a writer, curator, and researcher whose academic interests include digital art, computational media, and biotechnology. She was born and raised in San Francisco and holds degrees in philosophy, psychology, as well as visual and critical studies. And she is currently pursuing a PhD in film and digital media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I'd also like to mention we're missing one panelist, Claudia Schmuckley, who is the curator in charge of contemporary art and programming at the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, who is unable to make it tonight. But she has worked closely with our final panelist, who I will soon introduce, the inimitable, or again, knowing your work, that's probably not the right word, unimitatable, <laughs> imitatable <laughs> is indeed the right word, the unforgettable Lynn Hirschman Leeson, <laughs> an artist and filmmaker whose work has received international acclaim for over five decades. She is recognized for her innovative work investigating issues that are now recognized as key to the workings of society the relationship between humans and technology, identity, surveillance, and the use of media as a tool of empowerment against censorship and political repression. She is considered one of the most influential media artists and has made pioneering contributions in photography, video, film, performance, installation, and interactive as well as net-based media art. And finally, her work is represented by Untitled Art Exhibiting Gallery, Anglin Gilbert, who will be at the fair next week. There will also be work by Lynn on view. So another incentive to come down to Untitled. And without further ado, I will pass it on to you, Ethan. Thank you to all of the panelists, and thank you so much for leading this conversation tonight. To kick this off, I mean, the idea of this panel is is viewing art in the digital age. And as Amanda mentioned in the intro, there's this notion that the art world might be slower to adapt and to integrate with technology than, say, other industries and markets. Do you agree with that premise? And why or why not? I think some of them are, but not everybody, that there's an embedded mentality towards a system. Speaking here, just for some clarity many, throughout the rest many, of the episode, uh, is Lynn Hirschman Leeson. It's based on a different kind of thinking than digital art creates. And a lot of it is about value systems and building value systems. And that takes a while. It takes a while to be able to validate it and to write about it and to create the culture for it that allows it to be accessible in a gal gallery for an audience. So it's, it's rare that it happens right away, but it's something that builds up like the art itself, like the media itself. 
I mean, I'd say, I think another thing is museums are sort of the opposite of the move fast and break things. And this and is Erica Gangsy. You know, slow down and preserve things. You know, there are ways of doing things. It takes a long time for new art forms to make their way into a visual art or gallery culture. I mean, think about the many decades that there were separate galleries for photography before photography was recognized as an art form in its own right. And I think the sort of preservationist impulse of museums is one answer. And then on the other side, I think digital media is, and I'm sure then you can speak to this more than I could, that digital media is harder to commodify when you think about a commercial gallery context. You know, in a lot of cases, it's unclear what you're buying or what you're selling. Is it a digital file? Is it a videotape? Is it a document? That's what's exciting, you know, because you're able to do that. You you don't have to rely on a history of, of commodification, but you could invent exactly how that thing or ephemeral moment is preserved or codified. A big part of that, too, is there's also the expansion of art itself, like the definition of it. And I finally, this is Dorothy R. Santos speaking. Being some aspiring researcher, scholar, in film and digital media, I'm also looking at computational media and it's interesting because I'm seeing a lot of these and I, I'm, I will only be academic for like 30 seconds. No, and I'm seeing a lot of these programs pop up across the nation, even internationally in computational media, where it's a lot of the engineers and the programmers, they want to actually make art and they don't fit into typical or they are atypical of an engineering like their practice doesn't involve that, making something functional. And I think when people think of technology, they automatically think this thing has to serve me in X, Y, Z way versus it being something to experience and to see and to really ponder. Does so. think that's really limiting? I mean, it can be. Limiting in what sense do you mean? The- well, we got a lot of free programs when we were trying to, uh, sure. to, to make our AI piece, for mm-hmm. instance, in the 90s and do, do other things. Mm-hmm. And we weren't thinking about ways to come out of, to make it commercially viable. We're thinking about pushing the media as far as as we could. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think that my presentation also works both ways because on the one hand, you have people thinking of technology as purely functional. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, you have local tech companies working to incorporate artists into their office culture and into their program by hiring them to paint murals on the walls. And your artists are creative, inventive, outside the box thinkers and innovators and improvisers who can do a lot more than decorate your office. Let's go back quickly to, to photography. I mean, when photography first was introduced, the art world very much looked at them as scientists and technologists, right? There were even then different galleries that popped up for photography only. And it took a while for photography to be recognized as an art form. I mean, do you have any insight or thoughts on like why that was and, and how you know, that plays into the conversation that we're having. Arguably, you're bringing up photography, but look what photography did to painting. And I'm just going to, again, briefly touch upon painting because that's not the focus, but it kind of rippled out. I think people in other disciplines had to really be forced to think about how to push their own mediums. And But with photography, I think a lot of reason why people kind of thought about it as this new technology. You know, it's this new thing that only certain people maybe know how to function maybe certain people knew how shutter speed that also brings in this notion of surveillance where we think of the reason why kodak developed the boost flash was for surveillance purposes there is just inherently a notion of surveillance associated with it you're not necessarily going to you know affix that some kind of like sublime i don't mean that in the german romanticist way either but it's like you're thinking of it in in a different technical way versus something that you experience for some kind of um, 
experience per se or sublime experience. And it's a threat too. It's a threat to a particular system that's been embedded. Right. And people don't want to change it because they've invested in it. Yeah. Totally. Photography really changed the functional purpose of painting and drawing, as you said, because it used to be in order to be a scientist, you had to also be an illustrator. If Mm -hmm. you were an explorer, you had to bring a painter along Mm -hmm. with you because there was no other way to document what you were seeing. And when photography was invented, it changed all of that, so you no longer had to have a functional purpose mm-hmm. for painting or drawing, which results in a sort of wonderful identity crisis, which gives you phobism mm-hmm. and impressionism, exactly. all the great things that come after. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but then you think about, you know, 21st century painting, you know, painting's been going on, you know, and this is viewing art in the digital age. And I think about the distinction between the digital age as opposed to technology as such and all the technologies that came before mm-hmm. the digital age. You know, often we conflate the term technology with the term digital, but really, you know, painting was a technology, charcoal was a technology, you know, the cave paintings were reliant on a technology, mm-hmm. it's just a, not a digital technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lynn, you, you mentioned value system, and, and you look a lot at the interaction, the intersection between humans and technology in the sense of like surveillance or science. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit and, and talk about why artists or the art world might feel threatened by technology? Well, because it's a new medium. It's not really a new medium, but it's a medium of our time. When you start to see what what's going on and what really speaks resonantly to the perspective and perceptions of our, our society through the medium of our time, it's different from what has been in the, in the past. And as I say, it very often hasn't been written about. There hasn't been the value system established for it. It creates a different edge for seeing the past. It takes a while in order to find its way in, into culture and into language. May I riff off of that? Please. We're, here, we're all here <laughs> no, to riff we're off of each okay. other. No, but I think also in relationship to value systems, you also have to consider with new media and digital art, it has a very short genealogy in relationship to the rest of what is pegged as or perceived as deemed as art, meaning it's probably a good 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. And even when we think of things like the mother of all demos, when people were like the Stanford lab was in Palo Alto and from here, I forgot if it was Goldberg, but these engineers kind of creating these ways of communicating pre-internet. Again, it's these different associations and mind you, and Eric and I were talking about this and I'm sure Lynn can attest to this. Like we're, I'll speak for myself, but I'm a huge fan of like science fiction movies and speculative fiction. I, those are the types of things we associate, you know, your mind kind of things. What is the possibility of this particular technology? How is it going to go against or challenge the contours of an already existing value system I hold around the arts? That kind of, you know, no pun intended, kind of colors your experience when you go see digital art. I'm not trying to convince people as a writer and a researcher and artist myself, like I'm not trying to convince people like digital art's the greatest thing and you need to do X. What I'm trying to do is... How do you see this? What do you see? How do you experience it? Do you know the constellation of artists and people or even the political and cultural climate that has made this thing? What is its value to you? That's what I feel is rubbing up against and aligned with what Lynn is talking about. The science fiction, in a way, is speculative reality. Oh, totally, you know? yeah. So, so sure. sci-fi is really sci-true if you wait long yeah. enough. It's so <laughs> true. That's yeah. very true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's like that, you know, what Ursula Le Guin called the dark mirror that we hold up to our own reality or what we now experience through the show Black Mirror, mm-hmm. you know, that a lot of those technologies that are presented in that show come 
to be. But I did also just want to say one other thing about the development of the value system, which is with every new technology, there's a nascent expressive potential. It takes people a while to figure out just what the ins and outs of it are. You know, the same thing is true now with like uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, that people are so caught up in just the immersive potential of the spectacle that we haven't actually created or refined critical vocabulary for what those experiences could provide. Or maybe that's provocation. Maybe we have, or maybe we're starting to. There's also a fear of loss, like kind mm-hmm. of like a phantom limb uh, mm-hmm. of our memory of that if we have something new, it means we're going to have to give up something that already exists. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I like the phantom limb and the idea like, you know, to get something, we have to give something up. I mean, where analogy in art, you know, I mean, there's blockchain, VR, you mentioned augmented reality. And there's also your work that explores what's going on with surveillance. And- it goes beyond that. I think the new, the most pervasive, the most diabolical surveillance is internal and biological. Mm-hmm. Art is going into both artificial reality and artificial intelligence as well as biological conversions and, and editing systems, the creation of new life, really the transposition of life itself mm-hmm. in new kinds of ways that will re- reconform the world in a profound, all living things and the world in ways that we've never had before. It's really spectacular what's going on now and that, that art is uh, mimicking simultaneously these developments as they happen. Mm-hmm. Recently, I had an eight-room exhibition, which was the recreation of a genetics lab in a museum in Switzerland. I took all of the elements from the exhibition and converted it into DNA. And so the final room was looking through a lab door and just seeing the DNA of the 2,000 square feet that you just walked through. Of course, CRISPR, which is already becoming a little bit obsolete, but you know, gene editing systems that will reconform life forms. And right now, there's no restriction on what you could do. There's no FDA for, for CRISPR editing. So you could take anything whatsoever and make, make it into a new living system. Another example is Heather Dewey Hagford's work, where she, during her a residency at IBM in 2013, she you know collected the detritus on Brooklyn streets and basically did DNA phenotyping on this detritus and developed uh, ways of 3D modeling what these potential strangers would look like. So that is insidious and nefarious to a certain extent. I mean, people in other countries are doing this. Another example of what Lynn is talking about, but is more real life, is in Kuwait and around the same time, which it's more a battle than anything else, is that the government was trying to do DNA banking once you arrive in the country. Again, it's always this moral imperative of like DNA collection and and cellular material being that it's a new type of media. Mm -hmm. Prior to returning to academia, I was in biotech for almost 14 years. I know I look really young, but (laughs) I um, I, I was in biotech. So that's actually a very specific interest for me. If you're in biotech, you look young. I, you know, (laughs) I say it's young. What what kind of augmentations have you? I just say it's water. I just hydrate moisturize. That's it, right? Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, right. But, I mean, it's just an example. And, you know, and again, of course, Lynn's work being obviously inspirational to my own scholarship. And then there's a lot of different artists looking at cellular genetic material as media in itself. Yeah, and what it can do. Yeah. I mean, I worked with Navardis last year, and we created an antibody. I mean, together, we made this thing that became an antibody that is now in China (laughs) helping in the research for cancer. So, so, and I think it's an artwork. 
And mm-hmm. they, you know, I have photographs of the of, of the crystals forming. They're really beautiful. And to me, you know, it, it's really a new dynamic way of involving the media of our time mm-hmm. into new forms and communications. Another example is um, Phil Ross, local yeah. artist, who you know, he was growing sculptures out of mushrooms and using mushrooms as a sculptural material. And he learned so much about how to manipulate fungal material that he actually started his own business, which is uh, sustainable building materials and vegan leathers made out of fungus. The fact that so much R&D can be done in the service of creative expression that can then be applied in other... Yeah. I feel like that's a topic for a whole other panel. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's called the infinity suit. Mm -hmm. Um, So... we could we could dive here. We could go here. Yeah. Um, so I mean, technology is used for expressive means, but also for interpretive yeah. means. Erica, do you want to highlight some thoughts or ideas that you have on on how technology is being used on that side of the spectrum? One thing that is incredibly important to us when you know, we're developing interpretive resources at SFMOMA is to think of the technology as melting away. That if you notice the platform, if you if you notice the vehicle, you're not actually reaching the destination. And technology is a vehicle. It's not actually where we're trying to get people to. We're trying to get people to an insight. And so a lot of the time we'll think about the technology that we're using as you know, very, very light touch and oftentimes single purpose technologies. You know, you have an app that does audio tours and only does audio tours. We have a texting program. You can just text the SF MoMA collection, send me purple, and it'll send you something purple. You know, just very simple things that hook as much as possible into activities that people are already participating in on their phones. So you're not a sort of Swiss Army knife, not a lot of bells and whistles. And also, you know, a problem that I see a lot in my field is basically the equivalent of having a hammer and looking for a nail. You know, oh, I have this great tool. You know, there's this new mixed reality app. What problem can I solve with this mixed reality app? And that is sort of the backwards way to go about it. What you want to do is think, what problems am I trying to solve and what technologies can I use for those problems? Because it could be that a deck of cards that you hand out to visitors that issue simple conversational prompts and provocations is as useful as a $75,000 app. $75,000 is a lot of money to museums, but just like clarifying. American museums, yeah. A lot of the time, the, the most effective tool to solve the problem might also be the simplest. And so approaching it in that way so that the technology is a mediation and not the star of the show. You know, the art is the star of the show. When the art is technology, oftentimes we take a big step back because if you're in an immersive media installation, the last thing you want is an audio stop. Mm-hmm. It's sort of figuring out what that boundary area is and how we can be as unobtrusive as possible while still sort of providing a pathway or a bridge between the visitor and the artist. Because, you know, we're just, we're just the middlemen. You know, I love, for example, I mean, the, the hammer and the nails, you know, is a good uh, analogy. I think of like scooters here, which people are very passionate about. Like, why are they out there? But with the <laughs> texting, for example, that came, that came about from really someone solving a need that they had, which was the museum has so many works of art. 95% aren't being shown. And yeah. So this was a great way to show that. And it went viral and it was so simple. And then, you know, the app that you have is award winning. And why do you think that is? And what are examples? of, you said, light touch, of sort of heavy touch, or where, you know, it's the hammer, not the nail going first. We've sort of been availing ourselves of the fact that there's so much technology in 
the Bay Area for the entire history of my department. You had great partnerships with local companies and startups and innovators and entrepreneurs and hackers and whatnot. And we've been running a series of mixed reality experiments in the galleries where it's actually mobile mixed reality. So using, in one case, bespoke devices and in the other case, an app that's downloadable to people's own phones to try to figure out sort of what the visitor tolerance is and what the institutional tolerance is to a visually mediated experience within a visual art museum. And to me, visual augmented reality is still an example of heavy touch technology and still in a lot of cases, a hammer looking for a nail. And I think they're great examples. The Detroit Institute of Art has a augmented reality app where they've got a mummy and you can actually look inside the mummy with the augmented reality program and see the x-ray. In the visual art context, I think visual augmentation is, I'm suspicious of it, and I have yet to see truly effective use cases for visual mixed reality in that context, which is why as far as augmenting reality for visitors, we stick with audio so they can keep their eyes up and on the artwork. Because when you're standing in front of a work of art, that's a sacred experience. And all I want is for people to connect more deeply with that work of art. There are a few handful of projects that do show the successes of it or can show the potentiality of it. But I agree with the sense of like this heavy handedness that Eric is talking about in relationship to, you know, AR and VR and all these technologies. They're still, I mean, they require the body. I can see where you're coming from when you talk about the heavy hand. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. Focusing on viewing art in the digital age, we wanted to revisit some of the artists featured at Untitled who have used pioneering technologies in the artworks that have been presented at the fair. In 2015, the gallery Zier Smith brought a virtual reality artwork to the Untitled Art Fairs, the very first time we had exhibited a piece using this technology. I'm Scott Zier. The gallery's name is Zier Smith. We have been in New York for 17 years, but are currently in the process of moving to Nashville, Tennessee. The piece was by a New York-based artist named Rachel Rawson. What makes Rachel's virtual reality different is that it is as if you are in an oil painting, and it is often imagery from an oil painting. And then the paintings are hanging in the booth at the same time. We thought that was a really nice correlation As she drifts through her studio, everything is like a painting. And it's a peculiar, abstracted, very floral, bright, beautiful, psychedelic, for lack of a better way to put it, palette. That changed the paintings at the same time. The paintings changed for the better. The technology made it much more human. It doesn't feel digital at all. It doesn't feel electronic even at times. And the paintings don't look like screenshots. So she's made a very seamless melding of good old-fashioned oil painting, which she's trained in and is a a great painter, used that technology in that way so that it doesn't feel like a video game. We created a little table where you could sit down and then the computer could be staged because, after all, all you need is goggles and a computer. For the most part, virtual reality is a very singular experience. It's unlike anything that you'll see at an 
art fair because you're all alone in your way. You can't really share it. And that was part of the beauty of the pitch on this virtual reality experience was that you, I could safely say to anyone who walked up to me, you have never seen anything like this. And that's a tall order for an art dealer. Part of the beauty of it as well was that we were introducing something new that even if you had seen virtual reality before you hadn't seen it used like this. Well, a lot of people hadn't seen virtual reality before. Many of the reactions that Scott received from the audience, and especially those who participated in wearing the virtual reality goggles, was overwhelming. People were giggling, gasping, and there was overall and constant excitement about the new experience. In many ways, this reflects some of what Erica Gangsey was saying in the panel about how these technologies can be so dynamic when they are first introduced, since they are new and not yet understood. You know, maybe that's a gigantic, big, shiny thing that's got dollar signs all over it. This was different. This is an interesting and a peculiar thing that I think works on a different cultural level, because the advertising for the Oculus when it came out that Christmas, if you remember that holiday season... It was everywhere. As soon as we did this in early December, then you started to see ads going everywhere. And the ads were people at parties where one person has the Oculus on and the rest of them are all laughing at them and cheering them on. That's not really the way this thing functions. You're more sitting in a chair all by yourself and you can share it or maybe it's a video game platform. But what Rachel did that was so special was, I mean, many, many people said, "I I understand falling into, I could maybe never take this thing off. In the next episode, we'll discuss the future of technology and the arts. Tune in next week for part two of Viewing Art in the Digital Age. Ethan, Lynn, Dorothy, and Erica will go deeper into what this means within the context of Silicon Valley, technology migration, and issues of archivization and conservation of digital art. They'll talk about SFMOMA's most viewed artwork, Lynn Hirschman Leeson's Agent Ruby. They'll explore limits and ethical questions in relation to experimental artistic practices, social media, as well as what we can learn from glitches, and much, much more. On the conclusion of this episode, I want to give a special thanks to Ethan Appleby and the State of the Art Podcast for jumping in as our very first guest host, and also our endless gratitude to the speakers who participated on the panel, Lynn Hirschman Leeson, Erica Gangsey, and Dorothy R. Santos. Additional thanks to Matt Bernstein at The Battery for hosting this panel and Mnemonic Recordings for producing this episode. Finally, a huge thanks to the composer of the original soundtrack you heard at the beginning and end of this episode by Celia Hollander from the score for Madeline Hollander's Performance Mile, first performed at Untitled Art Fairs in Miami Beach, 2015. Don't forget to go out and see some art this season. We'd like to point out a few exhibitions opening next month at our partner institutions, including, in the Bay Area, Matt Mulliken, Between Sign and Subject, opening at the De Young in San Francisco.
Also opening in March at the San Jose Museum of Art is Undersoul, J. DeFeo, featuring photographs, photo collages, drawings, and paintings from the 70s and 80s that track the artist's visual vocabulary across media and subject matter. And don't miss solo exhibitions by Diamond Stingley and Rosha Yagmai on view at the Wattis Institute through the end of March. Down in Miami, make sure to visit the ICA Miami and catch the exhibition Larry Bell, Time Machines, before it closes on March 10th, as well as Manuel Solano, I Don't Want to Wait for Our Lives to Be Over, closing April 14th. March is also your last chance to visit the Bass and see Paola Pivi's solo exhibition, Art with a View, also closing March 10th. And don't forget to keep tuning in next week for part two of this panel, Viewing Art in the Digital Age. Signing off, I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll join us again on the Untitled Art Podcast. Untitled Art Podcast.